Hi everyone, and welcome to Net Zero Investors Better Word series of interviews sponsored by CCLA. Today I am joined by Dieter Helm, Professor of Economic Policy at the University of Oxford, who has formerly advised government on the sustainable use of natural capital, and who is also the author of several books, including on the actions to take to tackle the climate crisis. Hi Dieter, lovely to meet you. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So let's get straight to the point. Where are we with the climate crisis? What is the scientific view on the potential of a net zero trajectory, given where we are today, and the speed at which we're moving? Okay, so uh, after 27 COPs and 30, uh, two, 33 years from the baseline of 1990, in every single year we've added two parts of million uh, per million of carbon to the concentration in the atmosphere. And what matters is the concentration of those gases in the atmosphere. So we have not even made a dent in the last 30 years, and the COP27 of them have made no difference to that deadly progression of increased concentration in the atmosphere. So anybody who thinks that another 27 COPs or another 15 COPs or whatever is going to make much difference, they really are on another planet. And if we look at the uh, numbers behind the latest COP, so a promise of $100 billion per annum to help the developing countries, well, that's less than Saudi Aramco's annual dividend. So where we are is we're going down a path which is not going to get us to our target and certainly not going to achieve net zero by a 250. Some countries might. But the reason countries might is because what they're measuring is territorial carbon production and not their carbon footprint. So a country like the UK, uh, we're reducing our territorial emissions. Well, we've closed most of our in intensive industry. We're 80% services. So it's not surprising. Most of our emissions are produced in China, India and other developed countries, which we merrily import and don't count against our target. But globally, it's not going well, and we have to be brutally realistic about that, and we have to find new ways of getting back on track. Otherwise, we bequeath the next generation a very much hotter planet. So I'm guessing it means not a dent in the financial sector either. I mean, you've, um, I was wondering, because you've uh, said several times, highlighted the importance of placing an economic value on natural capital so that it compels companies and financial institutions to conserve nature instead of destroying it. So how does it work concretely? And what is your view on the latest development in the financial sector? The way to efficiently address climate change, biodiversity destruction, waste and so on, is to adopt the principle that polluters should pay, which means putting a price on the pollution. So we all take that into account in the decisions we make, whether it be businesses or it be consumers. And remember, business doesn't produce, for example, fossil fuels for fun. It doesn't pollute for fun. It does it because you and I want to buy the products that are made from that uh, pollution. So when it comes to the natural world and our natural capital, and the atmosphere is one of the assets of, uh, of our world, 
But what we do today is treat them as free. And because we don't place a value on them, we over consume from them. We over damage our natural environment. And the obvious thing to do is to put a value on that by making us pay for the pollution we cause. Now, that does not mean valuing the core natural assets in dollars or pounds or whatever, because these are all assets in perpetuity. We never want to be without them. And so the only relevant economic uh, values to place are the cost of capital maintenance, which is maintaining those assets intact in through time, and of course, the economics of enhancements to those assets, if we could ever get to a position of stopping doing the damage and starting to go back in the correct direction. But remember, all economic activity, all human activity, depends on this one precious planet we're on. And that is what gives us all that non-renewable natural capital, those minerals, and uh, as an aside, when we get to electric cars and uh, wind turbines and so on, we're going to be mining on a vastly greater scale than we've mined today. That's all from nature. That's in the Earth's crust. And those precious renewable natural capital assets that nature keeps giving us for free and again and again and again as they reproduce themselves, provided we're not stupid and irresponsible enough to drive them below that level where we can't bequeath them to future generations. You've mentioned uh, consumer, and that's something I'd like to get back to a bit later, but I'd like to stick to finance for now, uh, because we've seen some asset owners excluding companies from their portfolios because they were not aligning with environmental standards. Um, so what is your view on divestment? What are the risks for the divested companies? Is it just mostly a matter of reputation because usually divestment are made public? And according to you, how should real engagement look like? How can we measure it? What's been going on in ESG and divestment, etc., is uh, mainly smoke and mirrors. It's not serious. And let me let me explain why I say that. First of all, 80% of the world's energy is fossil fuel based. 80%. Same number as it was in 1970. Most of the rest is nuclear and hydro. There are some renewables. But in the order of things, our world depends overwhelmingly on fossil fuels. So those people who think that you can stop having fossil fuels tomorrow, you know, just stop oil. I mean, what do they want? Mass starvation? It's inconceivable and impractical to go from 80% fossil fuels to let's just divest. The second thing is that many of the companies that are targeted for divestment are publicly quoted Uh, privately owned, of course, uh, companies in the world stock exchanges. But, you know, most of the fossil fuels aren't produced by them. They're produced by, you know, state-owned companies, the Saudi Aramcos, the Rosnefs, etc. National oil companies, i.e. state-directed or state-owned national uh, companies, are the overwhelming bulk of the fossil fuels that we're using. And so if you stop, you know, Shell or BP, Um, from investing in developing this stuff, but you're still burning it. You're still putting it in your car tank. You're still heating your homes. You're still buying the plastics. You're still making the steel. So you stop them doing it. Do you think it's not going to be supplied? Or do you think you're just making room for much more environmentally worse companies, which are mainly in the NOCs, the national oil companies? So let's be brutally frank about whether we're wishing to just twitch the means for our conscience 
or we're actually wishing the end, which is to find a way of transitioning from an overwhelmingly carbon-based world to one that isn't. And when it comes to, you know, um, ESG, etc. So let me give you an example. You know, if you're into electric cars, you know, aren't you wonderful? Well, is all that cobalt coming from that mine in the middle of the Congo, destroying the rainforest? Have a look on Google Earth and see just how environmentally awful it is. Okay? So what matters here is not what's called scope one emissions. It's scope three. It's the consequences of your business model. And if you look through uh, the leading list of companies, I tried it with one of our student representatives going through the FT100 index. And you ask yourself what the scope three emissions are from every single company in those uh, in that index. And then you have a look at how the ESG people rate them. You'll find we're talking about two different worlds, because if the world is 80 percent fossil fuel, if we overwhelmingly depend on mining, there are no ethically clean companies because we're all complicit in that intensely polluting economy we've constructed. You know, we need a sustainable economy. But just pretending, you know, Tesla good, Shell bad is really just, you know, I'm sure it makes lots of fees for people. I'm sure there's a whole industry of people researching this, being paid to do it, consultancies, etc. I'm sure that every board in the in every major company has got, you know, sustainability directors, etc. The question is, is it making a difference? And I think the answer to that is not really. And sometimes it's positively damaging. And what we really ought to do is concentrate on pricing that pollution. But of course, we don't want to pay carbon taxes because, of course, we don't want our standard of living to be uh, addressed. But the fact is, looking at biodiversity and the climate, we're living beyond our means, which means we're not paying the true costs of the damage we're doing to our planet and therefore to our atmosphere, therefore our to our rainforests and our biodiversity and therefore to the next generation. And to pretend otherwise is just dishonest. And do you believe that now fossil fuel players, they're relying more and more on carbon capture and storage and similar techniques to mitigate the emissions that they produce? Do you think that's something that could undermine overall efforts to move towards what for many seems to be a swear word, sobriety? The stock of carbon in the atmosphere is the result of emissions going up and sequestration coming out. So our natural world has been sequestrating carbon. Indeed, you can't have plant life without carbon, right? Uh, and it's been keeping our climate in balance. That's where we are now, that twist between what's going up and what's coming down, okay? So the first thing to bear in mind is to stop the natural environment's sequestration's ability being destroyed. So those pictures of the rainforest being burnt, those pictures of the Congo cobalt mines to make the batteries, this is destroying and, and all those dams on the Mekong are damaging the, the great Mekong rainforest. These are destroying the ability of the world's natural assets, its natural capital to absorb and moderate our climate. And of course, we're doing great damage to uh, the coastal margins, particularly in Southeast Asia. Uh, we're doing great damage in the acidification of the oceans and so on. So that's number one. You've got to do that. You've got to get your emissions down. And it is true that putting rocks to rocks, as it's called, taking the stuff out and putting it back in, 
industrial sequestration through CCS is an important part of the game. A problem comes when people think that they can do CCS or natural sequestration instead of reducing emissions. That isn't going to work. We've got to do both. And many of the so-called carbon offsets are, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a justifiable role for carbon offsets, but there's either naivety, the idea that any offset is like any other, and they're not because all the other uh, natural capital impacts, and that they can just be traded with each other. This is great news for people making money out of trading, but it's just nonsense environmentally. And, and what we're waiting for in the carbon offset world is the latest massive greenwash scandal. And you can see them coming up all over the place. They burn down, uh, there's destruction. You know, people claim they've got uh, net zero LNG cargoes. You know, just a bit of common sense told you this is nonsense. But having a look at what's involved in planting vast areas of forest uh, with often inappropriate trees tells you spades about how badly regulated this voluntary offset market currently is. We need offsets, we need natural sequestration, we need industrial sequestration, and we need emissions reductions, all not one as a substitute for the other. Well, since we're talking about greenwashing, we're hearing more and more about things like sustainable aviation fuel, renewable biocrops and biofuel. For someone who's not an expert on that, it might be difficult to tell fact from fiction. So what would be your advice so that daily consumers don't fall into the greenwashing trap and how, more generally speaking, could we make people more aware of environmental issues without making them think that net zero means renouncing to their to their comfort, especially in times of high inflation rates? Yes. I mean, I see many of my colleagues who fly around the world and say they spent some money buying an offset to uh, uh, assuage their conscience. You know, I mean, I don't fly. Actually, it's not quite true. I fly one small flight a year uh, at low altitude. But um, the idea of the so-called sustainable aviation fuel, theoretically, it's perfectly plausible to find uh, processes, algae, all sorts of things which might make fuel. But on the scale of aviation, highly unlikely. And to give you an example, you know, um, renewable fuel in Europe for transport turned out to be half from cleared rainforest for palm oil plantations in Southeast Asia. You've got to be very careful that you really understand the supply chain in order to justify the outcome. And, you know, biomass, you know, burning wood pellets in a Drax power station in the UK, claiming the emissions don't count in the UK and thinking that's sustainable. These are the sorts of things which, um, you know, corporate PR, etc., is really good at. The chief executives are great at extolling how wonderful they are. But, you know, a bit of common sense is what any consumer wants. If it sounds too good to be true, that you can fly as much as you like and it's all sustainable aviation and someone will plant a tree for you to look after your conscience. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And uh, so, therefore, I would advise anyone looking at these um, uh, you know, easy options to ask themselves, you know, does it really add up? Or is it just sophisticated greenwash? Be sceptical. That's the word to use. Sceptical, sceptical, sceptical. And in my book, I say, examine your own carbon diary. Write it down. Write down what you do every day. 
and try and work out how much carbon's in it. Then when you think you've got to rewrite that diary in 20 years time with very little carbon in it, imagine what that means. Your clothes, your shoes, your shampoo, um, you know, your breakfast cereal, the cardboard that goes around it, the palm oil, you know, add it all up. And what it tells you is that our world is 80% carbon fuel driven. It's huge. And we're destroying a lot of our natural resources, rainforests, as well as doing that. And that isn't sustainable and it isn't efficient. And what we need to do is get on a sustainable consumption path, build a sustainable economy. And of course, economic growth goes on. There's massive new technological ideas, great new uh, stuff coming out of universities, bright entrepreneurs, uh, people financing startups. There's huge possibilities out there. This is what we should embrace, but not pretend that we found some sort of cop out and then uh, uh, no doubt wonder why we're embarrassed by uh, the consequences when this stuff is found out. Thank you very much, Dieter. I believe that's all the time we had for today. Thank you to our sponsor, CCLA, and thank you, Dieter. It was a delight to speak with you, and I'm hoping it won't be the last time with Net Zero Investor. Well, thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. Thank you.